This week on Life and Faith. I do not think any of us know because I think the systems that we trust in to know have broken down. The polls have broken down, the communication media have broken down, and our trust in one of those neighbors, even to tell the truth about what's going on in our own hearts, has broken down. And uh, so this is the most unpredictable election uh, of my lifetime. We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the ESA army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. We have all been in the thick of the US election period. It seems like it's been going on forever, but it's coming to a head on November the 3rd. It's been an incredibly contested and divided election, even by modern political standards. And that seems largely reflective of a massive and increasing division within the United States. And there's an unmistakable ingredient in all of this the division along faith lines. Now, in relatively recent history, the Republican Party has captured especially the white evangelical vote. How did this come about? And is this even good for the Republican Party or the church? We want to ask in this episode, are there any solutions to what feels like entrenched polarisation? And how might faith not be part of the problem, but part of the solution? This week and next on Life and Faith, we consider polarization and the politicization of faith and how both are playing out in the US election. And we called on some voices from the US to shed some light on this perplexing story. But before we get into it, we want to play you a fragment from a talk Tim Dixon did for us, the Richard Johnson lecture last year. Now, Tim Dixon is the CEO of More in Common a think tank that studies drivers of polarization. And the Richard Johnson Lecture is CPX's annual lecture. We've just held it online this year. In this part of Tim's talk, he began by referring to a book by Arthur Brooks, Love Your Enemies, in which he speaks about our contemporary culture of contempt. Brooks discusses the ways that a tone of contempt has overtaken our public conversations. Contempt is profoundly different from disagreement and even anger. Contempt is the, the rolling of the eyes, the dismissal of the other. Arthur Brooks cites evidence from John Gottman, one of the world's leading psychologists, experts in marriage stability and, uh, and divorce. And he's for a lifetime studied the dynamics that make for successful marital relationships. And Gottman says one of the most accurate predictors that a marriage will not last is where you see evidence of contempt creeping into a relationship. When you hold me in contempt, you're saying to me, your opinion is not worthy. You're saying to me, you are not worthy. You're saying to me, it wouldn't matter, it would be a better thing if you simply weren't here. Mutual contempt increasingly characterises the way we engage with each other and navigate our differences. Exploiting feelings of contempt and then intensifying them is at the heart of the us versus them dynamics of authoritarian populists around the world. And their message is simple. Those elites, they have contempt for you and you're absolutely right and justified to hold them and all that they defend in contempt as well. That's Tim Dixon from the 2019 Richard Johnson Lecture, and we'll link to the full talk on the show notes. It's well worth a listen. 
And you have to admit, Tim has a point about the way contempt has come to dominate public life. Now, during the first of the U.S. presidential debates, Joe Biden, worn out by Donald Trump's constant interruptions, called him a clown. You have to admit, it's it's quite mild, isn't it, Simon, compared to what Donald Trump often says about other people. But it is hard to imagine other presidential candidates name-calling. But I do remember that back in 2016, Hillary Clinton, the Democratic presidential nominee, she did call Trump supporters a basket of deplorables. It's not right. Yeah. Not a good look. Yes, and that didn't go down well. It seems no one is covering themselves in glory in all of this. That kind of contempt between Republicans and Democrats is evidence of what Amy Black, professor of political science at Wheaton College in Illinois, calls affective polarization. This is what she means by that term. And that means not just that there's a, an ideological difference between two parties, but that there's a sense of animosity toward the other. So it's not just that a Republican is different than a Democrat. A Republican hates the Democrat or the Democrat hates the Republican at the most extreme. And so we have this problem of us versus them politics. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with them because they are so bad, so problematic. So that's what I worry about when we've gotten to this system. It's not just that we're different from one another, but that we actively dislike and possibly even hate the other party. It's really hard to see a way forward. Andy Crouch is an author, a speaker, and the former editor of Christianity Today, which is America's flagship evangelical magazine. For Andy, American party politics is a zero-sum game, what he called a winner-take-all system that makes it especially vital that your party wins. I think, you know, politics, especially electoral politics, it's a winner-take-all system, especially in, a, in, our, in our construction of democracy here in the U.S. Uh, you can have 48% of the vote, but if you get the right number of votes in our electoral college, you have 100% of the takings, you could say, on the, on the electoral side, unlike, say, a, par a more par parliamentary system. And so you're playing for everything. Only one side is willing to fight. According to Amy Black, the very nature of the U.S. party system may itself drive polarization. So when we look at polarization in the United States, what we see is we're seeing growing party divides. We've always had these two major parties, um, but in this polarization, people are moving farther apart from one another. It used to be that our two parties were much more sort of big tent parties, kind of moved to the middle, and we had moderates in both parties. But in recent years, really over the last 20 years, we've seen that change quite a bit. So now the Republican Party is the party of conservatives, and the Democratic Party is the party of liberals, and there aren't many moderates in either party. Now these days, evangelical Christian has become shorthand for Republican. The surveys that poll people on their political leanings, as well as drill down into their religious beliefs, bear this out, as Amy Black explains. You know, and what, well, one thing too, um, in the United States, the term evangelical has kind of turned into a phrase that really means politically conservative Christian, not just theologically conservative Christian. Um, and, and particularly to outsiders, when they hear evangelical, that's what they think. But it's also true that evangelicals, if you do a little deeper dive study that has more religion questions, you ask people about their faith, theologically conservative Christians, evangelical Christians are going to tend in the United States to be um, more attracted to the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. It's not everyone by any stretch, but we expect 
two thirds to three quarters of evangelicals to vote Republican in a typical national election. And that's because of a number of issues that connect to that particular group of religious voters. So that, that affinity is already there. Today, there may be more of a natural fit between the Republican Party and white evangelicals, but that hasn't always been the case. Amy Black again. And there's a long history of sort of this group of Christians in the United States, you know, being very much a part of some really significant social movements activated by their faith, wanting to see social change to to what they think would make the world a better place. What's interesting, I think, when we look at evangelicals, at least at contemporary evangelicals, is this is something that we're usually dating to about the 1970s forward. There was a period of time in the mid 20th century where conservative Christians tended to have removed themselves from politics. It's a long, complicated story, but there was a sense of, I don't have a place here, so we're just not going to be involved in politics. We began to see Christians um, getting more directly involved in politics as Christians in the 1970s. And in the 1976 election, Jimmy Carter, who um, became famous for doing an interview with Playboy magazine and talking about how he was born again in his faith. And this kind of people didn't quite know what to do with the man, but he was um, beloved by evangelicals because they realized he's one of us. Here's the Southern Baptist. He believes like we do. He talks about his faith. We're not used to hearing this. And this is, of course, in the wake of President Nixon having resigned during the Watergate scandal. So we're looking for someone honest, someone we can trust. Jimmy Carter, the Democrat, did very well with evangelical voters and kind of helped bring evangelical voters kind of back into the public sphere. But what we saw is there were a number of things going on between the two parties. Again, lots of things that, a complicated story, but one thread, an important thread in that story would be the, um, the role of the abortion issue. The abortion issue became a national issue in the 1970s because of a Supreme Court decision called Roe versus Wade. So now this is something that's part of the presidential election. Jimmy Carter himself said he was personally pro-life, but he had a very separate separatist view of government and felt like it wasn't his position as as president to tell people what to do. So he was pro-choice in his politics. That did not go over well with a lot of conservative Christians. Whereas Ronald Reagan, who wasn't someone who spoke much about faith, he realized these these people care about this and he was happy to to bring that issue on and so he became known as made very clear that he was a pro-life candidate and actively courted religious voters based on the abortion issue and so that's when we begin to see things kind of shaking out in the direction to which they are now so we're now at a point in the united states it used to be that the two parties were somewhat divided on the abortion issue by this point right now in american politics the republican party is the politics who would say that's pro-life And we would say that the Democratic Party is the party that's pro-choice. There are a few exceptions, but very few. And so for many religious voters, the abortion issue is particularly important to them. So and for some, it may be the most important issue on which they vote. And so they're connecting their vote and saying, which party cares about my number one issue? And right now that's going to be the Republican Party. Andy Crouch, however, says that Democrats haven't exactly been tripping over themselves to win over evangelicals. The unfortunate reality is that over about a generation, the Democratic Party uh, at its grassroots level has become more secular 
that is less willing to envision that there's a place for distinctive religious commit commitments in public life or in organizations and institutions that have a, a share in public life. And the funny thing is that the democratic candidates tend to be people who espouse faith. Uh, so they, they themselves, uh, really to a person in, in recent years, I mean, for many decades now, have been people who espoused personal faith. Uh, and I have no reason to think that that's not sincerely held. And the interesting thing is that the Republican candidates uh, vary in their espousal of personal faith. So Ronald Reagan was not a person of notable religious observance. Uh, Donald Trump himself is certainly not a person of notable religious observance. When he holds a Bible, he looks very uncomfortable and looks like he might not have held one in a very long time. But the Republican grassroots are actually very open to faith. So you have the democratic system has over time marginalized people who wanted to make room for uh, especially specific commitments about the nature of human beings, male and female, about abortion, which is a major issue in our jurisprudence, as you know. And in that sense, I think that many people feel that they need someone in their corner. Uh, I think, you know, someone in their corner. Now, maybe this explains why there's such great interest in appointees to the Supreme Court in America. Now, if you just think about Australia as a comparison, I mean, do you even know which judges sit on the high court in Australia? In the US, these appointments are highly politicized. But according to Andy Crouch, they are a sign of something deeper. It's a proxy for something else and deeper, um, which ultimately I think is about... The best word I can think of is is a kind of respect or recognition, uh, the recognition of parts of our society that feel very unseen or when seen feel held in contempt. And this is not just uh, by any means just white evangelicals. It's actually many groups in American life feel that the public world that they live in is one that holds them and people like them in contempt. And they can find examples on the other side, and it's not hard to find them in the age of social media, who hold themselves and people like them in contempt. And so these confirmation hearings, these uh, uh, presidential elections become kind of referendums on who's going to get respect in American life. And, and the people who feel least respected and feel least included by the systems and institutions of American life on all sides, again, of the politics, not just Christians, uh, not just rural white voters, for example, who overlap a lot with uh, self-identified evangelical Christians in our system, in our country, uh, but all sides are looking for someone to validate them and say, I see you, I recognize you, you matter. What Andy Crouch is describing here might also be the reason why black voters, including black Protestants, tend to vote Democrat, which introduces another significant aspect of this polarization, racial division. Lisa Sharon Harper is an activist, author, speaker, and founder of Freedom Road, which consults with churches and other organizations to promote racial justice. She explains why black voters tend to be Democrat. We are typically the most committed members of the Democratic Party, black women in particular, because the Democratic Party in the 20th century, the mid 20th century in 1964 and 1965 is the party that responded to our push for civil rights, to our push for the protection of our citizenship, the rights of citizenship afforded to us and every person of color in America and white person 
the right to be a citizen, not based on, on previous, um, previous uh, uh, condition of servitude or on race. And to be able to vote, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. That's what the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did. It enforced um, the 13th, 14th Amendment. The, the Voting Rights Act enforced the 15th Amendment. So who, which party did that? The Democratic Party. So when you look at the, at the bifurcation of faith in the church in America, you do. You see Black people, generally speaking, the Black church is going to be Democratic. But it's not because we're lemmings or because we, we need somebody to follow. It's because that is the party that is most responsive and has been since 1964, the party most responsive to the needs of people of color. As Lisa Sharon Harper explains, the Democratic Party wasn't always the champion of civil rights for black people. Historically, it was based in the South, pro-slavery and firmly opposed to Abraham Lincoln, the Republican president who had freed the slaves. Lisa again. And the Democratic Party went through like a 20-year shift or 30-year shift away from, they, they were at one point the party that fought Lincoln, right? Lincoln was a Republican. So the Democrats at one point, mid-century, after, after World War II, they lifted up a platform in the Democratic Convention of 1946, I believe. They lifted up a platform that included pushing for a Civil Rights Act then in the 1940s. But they lost that year to Republicans, so they never got to institute that. After the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, the Southern Democrats left the Democratic Party white Southern Democrats left the Democratic Party and they were partyless for a few years until Nixon called them, hey, come over here, come over to the Republican Party. And they found a home in the Republican Party. And that is where they've been ever since. In fact, the night that Democratic President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, outlawing discrimination on the basis of race, he's supposed to have said glumly to his assistant, I think we just delivered the South to the Republican Party for a long time to come. You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX, and this is the first of two episodes on the US election. This week, we're talking about polarization and tribalism and the way both are playing out in the election. As we've seen so far, Republicans and Democrats are polarised politically and also on the basis of race, which is interesting since that brief glimpse of the history of both parties doesn't necessarily make today's political landscape a foregone conclusion. A few years ago, we did an interview with David Smith, who's a senior lecturer in American politics and foreign policy at the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. Now, in this bit from our chat... He highlights the risk of either party starting to take their rusted-on voters for granted. Once any group gets completely captured by one party, they can be ignored by both parties. And as much as evangelicals liked George W. Bush, for example, at the end of his presidency, a lot of them were really asking, what did he actually do for us? How did he actually advance our aims? And, you know, the answer is not very far. It also could be very dangerous for the Republican Party to become so identified with a particular form of Christianity because the Republican Party has a wide range of ideological beliefs that are not all related 
to religious conservatism. And there would be people who are in general sympathetic to their view of having very small government, low taxes, a strong military, but without wanting the religious baggage that goes along with that. So it is potentially dangerous for Republicans. Of course, there are dangers for the Democratic Party as well in becoming increasingly secular, because in a country that is you know, between 60 and 70% Christian, uh, you've got very narrow margins electorally to work with if you can't get at least some of those people into your tent. Social researcher Robert Putnam makes a similar point in his book, American Grace. He describes how the capturing of the religious by one party has not been good for either the party or the church. The Republicans' religion-friendly image has had consequences for politics and also the religious landscape. A growing number of young Americans equate religion with Republican, and as a result, they turn away from religion. They think if religion equates to right-wing politics, I'm not interested. And it sounds like there's plenty of people who don't identify with either party. Amy Black. A lot of times with this election, we heard this a lot in 2016 as well, people would say there's no good option or even sometimes, well, I have to vote for the lesser of two evils because there's just kind of a sense of neither of these people is close to what I would want to vote for. Andy Crouch certainly feels that. Given the evangelical embrace of the Republican Party, I asked Andy, whatever happened to the new evangelicals? Evangelicals who cared about immigration reform, racial justice, environmental care. I remember writing about these people in 2008. These are issues that didn't neatly divide down Republican-Democrat lines. The contours of my faith caused me to recognize a lot in common with people who do identify themselves as evangelicals religiously. But politically, I find it impossible to find representation for the things I care about in a single package, uh, especially in our two parties in the United States. And I think actually what happened to the New Evangelicals is uh, they, they, they're actually still around. And in fact, many of our institutions, that is to say, our Christian colleges, of which we have many in the United States, many of our churches, um, many of our service organizations, maybe the majority of our service organizations that have a Christian identity, um, these are actually inhabited by people who do not feel at all well represented by the uh, kind of conservative side of politics, uh, though in certain respects, our convictions may line up there. And the problem is that in this winner take all system, if you have no one who represents you, it's very hard to be heard. And so uh, there's a lot of us who uh, do not vote or do not vote for a principal party candidate. I have not myself voted for um, one of the two uh, party candidates, I can't remember the last time I did that because I honestly don't feel that either either one uh, over the years has, has been able to represent the things that I care most about in public life. There's a lot of people like me, uh, but, but we don't get a lot of media attention uh, from the mainstream media that really only care about the two-party horse race. And it's in some ways understandable because we are limited in our ability to really shape uh, this side of American politics. But there are many groups alienated by both of the major parties calling for a different way to engage with politics, Andy says. We have an amazing movement in the United States called the AND campaign, which doesn't grow out of uh, what you would call white uh, evangelicalism, but uh, out of the black Christian expression of faith. 
out of the urban expression of faith. And uh, it is impossible to categorize the Ann campaign in terms of our current partisan politics. Uh, they are very for racial justice. They're very for uh, comprehensive immigration reform, which is another real hot button issue for our country that doesn't divide exactly along partisan lines. It's a complex issue. Um, they're also pro-life. They're also pro-family. And uh, the Ann campaign is significant, but it is very hard for it to find kind of a toehold in uh, when it comes to go into the ballot, uh, you know, into the voting booth. You don't have a, a clear way to vote for that package. So this is really one of our challenges. And I think in the very long run, there's going to have to be a realignment because uh, both of our major parties are built on unsustainable coalitions. Uh, the Republican Party has been built on a coalition of big business with social conservatives, the, and the Democratic Party on a coalition of those who feel very economically marginal with those who are very culturally elite. And these are not natural coalitions that hold together very well. They're based on pretty dubious bargains <laughs> in which I would say the social conservatives get the short end on the Republican side and the truly economically marginal get the short end on the Democrat side. So over time, you've got to believe that there's a realignment that happens, but our system is not well built to facilitate that. And so for quite a while, you're going to have a lot of invisible voices, uh, invisible voters and unheard voices uh, in our political system. Andy raises another challenge that's part of this volatile mix the fact that social trust is at a very low point. And the election takes place in a year of not just the pandemic, but protest action over racial injustice. This is something that crosses across almost every institution in American life. There's a, there's a really profound and troubling decline in trust in institutions. And when that happens, uh, people divide, I mean, a word that's often used uh, is into tribes, into sufficiently similar groups that we can just sort of innately trust one another uh, to have one another's, to have our interests at heart. And institutions are meant to hold people together in an environment that allows them to trust each other across lines of difference. But that has broken down. And I don't know for sure that that any given outcome of this presidential election will make that better or worse, uh, I'm, because I'm not sure it can get much worse. <laughs> I, I, I have a hard time imagining it getting any worse than it is today. I think that uh, we are already at this apocalyptic moment where we are awaiting a new kind of leader who can reforge a kind of trust across difference. Um, and we do not at this moment clearly see that leader. Uh, on the horizon at a, at a national level, even though when you live at the local level, there are all kinds of people who, who engender this kind of trust, who merit this kind of trust and build this kind of trust. But you move up to the national level, which becomes so uh, driven by media rather than by real relationship. And, and our national figures themselves live in very encased worlds of, of like-minded people and have very few opportunities to meet one another across difference. They, they meet one another through the media. They meet one another through attacks on social media, through attacks on the broadcast media. And they form their sense of one another that way. This didn't used to be the way it was. You used to meet people at, you know, I mean, cocktail parties and, uh, and in the halls of Congress. Well, in the era of COVID-19, no one's meeting anyone that way. We're all meeting one another in mediated ways. And it just accelerates the breakdown in trust among the people who ought to be representing the possibility of trust. And it's fair to say that this breakdown of trust is why Andy is hesitant about making predictions about the outcome of the presidential race. I 
I don't know. I, I, I do not think any of us know because I think our ability, the, the systems that we trust in to know have broken down. The polls have broken down, the communication media have broken down, and our trust in one of those neighbors, even to tell the truth about what's going on in our, our own hearts, has broken down. And uh, so this is the most unpredictable election uh, of my lifetime. However, even if all of this is grounds for pessimism, Andy Crouch knows that it's possible for leaders to emerge who can, as he says, reforge a trust across difference. That being said, Simon, uh, the, the amazing story of American life, and in, in some ways any nation that survived beyond the initial conflicts of its founding, are that these people do arise in history. Uh, I mean, I lived through the end of apartheid in South Africa as an American, but I witnessed it in my lifetime. And I remember in the 1980s thinking, there is no way this ends without violence. But it did end without violence because Nelson Mandela, above all, underwent a profound conversion on Robben Island off of Cape Town. And then, uh, and then F.W. de Klerk reached out to him while he was still a prisoner and began to negotiate a, an imagined uh, change. And of course, the subsequent history of that country is not without conflict and without difficulty, but still an amazing, unpredictable moment. And I would say the same thing happened with the rise of Martin Luther King Jr. and Lyndon Baines Johnson, our, our president at that time, who of course only was president because of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, who for various reasons, I don't think JFK ever would have gotten uh, the country to a moment of reckoning and a certain kind of political reconciliation. But LBJ and MLK, uh, operating in important ways behind the scenes, as well as having a public role, actually uh, achieved a breakthrough in at least the legal uh, reality of civil rights in our country and much, and a real social change as well. So you never can predict this or see this coming. Uh, as a Christian, my first job in a way is to have hope. And I hope and pray that those kinds of leaders are even now present and just not yet seen. I know what you're thinking. Hope. Remember hope? I know, right? Imagine that. Well, maybe this also depends on the faithful thinking differently about political engagement. Here's Amy Black reflecting on how Jesus's radical ethic of love might redirect Christians' political priorities, especially when it comes to their political others. I mean, when we look at the crucifixion, we're thinking about, uh, we would believe that God's, God in Jesus, his son, comes to earth, lives a sinless life, and dies, is crucified, is martyred on behalf to save the sins of the whole world. So the, to look at the cross is to look at the ultimate act of sacrificial love. And in the Christian faith, we're taught the most important commandments, first to love God, and then to love our neighbor. We have to start that with that radical, Jesus' radical ethic of love. And we can't go along with a playbook of hate. We're taught to love our enemies. It doesn't say hate your enemies. It says, love your enemies. You know, Do good to those who persecute you. Because right now our politics is telling us, don't listen to anyone who, except those who agree with you. Don't have conversations with them, have nothing to do with them. Just having conversations, bringing people together across differences racial differences, religious differences, ideological differences, bring them together in ways where we can begin to have a healthier community, listen to one another. I think that's a really wonderful way we can start to heal the wounds because it's really hard to hate someone if you get to know them and you know the name of their kids, you know, you know what they do for a living, you know what their problems are. You don't hate them anymore. You love them. 
So if we can start building those relationships, fostering opportunities for people to meet across those divides, I think there's, there's great opportunity there. In all of this discussion about faith and politics, a lot of what's at play here is power and the fear of the loss of power. Landy well, Crouch has done a lot of thinking about this and has written the book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Andy has a very positive vision of what power can achieve. I would draw a distinction between creative power and coercive power. Uh, part of the problem with a fixation on politics is that uh, ultimately the, the principal thing that the state can do that no other part of our shared life can do is make you do something you don't want to do. <laughs> the state has, this is Max Weber's uh, kind of framing, has the monopoly on coercion, the monopoly on being able to force you to do something you don't want to do. And when you start to conceive power in coercive terms, it becomes zero sum because ultimately either I can make you do something or you can make me do something, but we can't both have that coercive power in the same measure at the same time. Whereas creative power, the, the ability to bring into being something that doesn't exist through our common imagination and uh, shared effort, that actually can be shared and that actually can grow. It's not zero sum, it's positive sum, you know, to use game theory language. It can actually multiply in human life. Our best political leaders actually use this kind of power as well. Uh, they don't just use coercion. They, they invoke kind of our shared capacity to create something that doesn't exist right now. Um, but at our worst, of course, we let power in a way uh, diminish to politics. Uh, it diminishes to coercion. And then it becomes super dangerous because uh, there's really not that much you can make people do. Uh, your, your power is very limited and narrow when it's only coercive. And it's also very brittle and fragile. And this is when revolutions happen, is when the, the coercive power becomes seen as so illegitimate that people overthrow it. But revolutions rarely have a creative outcome. So I really believe in creative power. Uh, I'm very wary of seeking to hold or harness coercive power. Of course, if you could make everyone do what you want them to do, wouldn't that be great? I would just say that at least in American political life, both sides indulge this fantasy. The idea that if we are just handed the, the reins um, and in our system, of course, because we have divided, uh, it's sort of designed almost to generate divided government. But if you can manage to capture both the legislative side, both houses and the presidency uh, these days, you can capture the judiciary effectively. And the imagination then is, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be able to finally remake the world in the way we want it to be. I do think at this moment, the strong man is on the, the sort of strong individual uh, is embodied in Donald Trump and is on the conservative side. And the more liberal or progressive side trusts in a kind of takeover of the institutions and the coercive power of institutions. But both of them dream of a kind of coercive remaking. Uh, even though both of them, to a greater or lesser extent, cloak that dream in uh, in other language, uh, but you know the 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 strongman could easily it, it could easily be reversed. Uh, the strongman could be on the other side. That has often been true in recent history. It's true today in parts of the world. Uh, it really doesn't matter. It's always a mirage because you cannot make the world be what you want it to be. You can only imagine and and sacrificially bring into being a world that is truly good. You can't coercively bring into being a world that's truly good. So in a way, what we, what I believe we have to do as Christians, even as we attend to the politics around us, we've got to cleanse our imaginations of the, the, the politicized idea that the way that I will get the good I want to see in the world is through 
acts of coercion, whether by strongmen or just by extremely powerful uh, kind of control of institutional structures. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Stay tuned for next week's episode of Life and Faith as we continue musing on how faith has been politicized in the US election. Big thanks to our guests. We heard from Andy Crouch, author, speaker, and former editor of Christianity Today. Thank you also to Amy Black, professor of political science at Wheaton College in Illinois, and also Lisa Sharon Harper, activist, author, speaker, and the founder and president of Freedom Road. And thanks also to our producer, Anthea Godsmark, for pulling all of this together. We worked out hard this week. If you've enjoyed this conversation, why not send it on to a friend? Also, leave us a rating or review. It helps get the word out. Next week. And I think this may have been the first, if not one of the very first um, appearances that he made with Trump himself. And, and he was the pastor. He offered the opening prayer. And right then I thought, he does not know where he is. Right? The people in this space are not going to go for that kind of Christian nationalism, that militancy. And, and then I heard you know, the crowd, they were going for it. They were cheering him on. 